Lord, we thank you for this morning and for that truth that we are your children and that there is a place for us in your house. God, that while we meet here, you meet with us. And that scripture that Elizabeth spoke of this morning is so true. God, there are, there are two or more of us gathered here in this room this morning waiting to hear from you. And we trust and we know that you will show up. God, we thank you for the things that you do for us. Would you be present and give us ears to hear this morning? In Jesus' name, amen. Well, good morning. How are you? Good. I'm glad to hear that. It's a good word. Blessed. All right, so this morning we are starting a brand spanking shiny new sermon series. Um, And that sermon series is called Waiting Room. I'll tell you, it doesn't sound super exciting from the outset. It kind of sounds like the sorts of sermons that you will hear, and you just think to yourself, well, yeah, waiting room. I'm going to have to wait through a lot of these sermons, huh? (laughs) But actually, this sermon series is delayed. Anyway, actually, this sermon series is focused on getting us from the place that we're at to the place that God wants us to be. And a lot of the time, that involves waiting, a lot of waiting. Okay, so as we start this new sermon series, I'm going to pray over it um, because that's what we do. Every single sermon series is we pray that the Lord would speak to us in a way that is challenging um, and that causes us to grow. So Lord, we thank you uh, that we get to start a new subject. We thank you for Christmas and the message that is there. But Lord, in this season, we are currently in a season of waiting. We're in the weird interim between Christmas and Easter. And Lord, I'm confident that you have something for us in this sermon series. Trying to get from where we're at to where you want us to be. God, would you lead us? Amen. Okay, so I'm going to talk to you this morning about chess. And I know that that's a really weird, you know, segue into what I'm talking about. But I've I've told you this before. My day job is at the YMCA. And we have all range of kids from six weeks. They can come as early as six weeks. Isn't that crazy to you? That's crazy to me. But man, are they cuties. Oh, my goodness. Like, they just melt your heart. Like, I'm like, yeah, okay, five weeks. I'd take them. Like, let's go. Okay, so from... I know, I'm a, I am a big softie now, all of a sudden. So we get kids as, early, as young as six weeks, all the way up to 12 years old. And my job, essentially, is to watch these kids while their parents work out. So the, it's pretty simple, pretty straightforward. Some of my favorite kids, aside from the babies, to work with are the older kids, the 7 to 12-year-olds. You know, because they're sassy, and they have personality, and they can whoop your butt at any game that you play with them. That's it. You know, they have the confidence to understand the games, to know them, and to own you at them. Okay? And so chess, I didn't know how to play when I very first started working there. But man, have I been learned a thing or two. (laughs) Okay? These kids are crazy about chess, which is a really good thing. But it's also kind of weird, you know, what kids are like, I want to play chess right now. You know, it's not the most... Okay, one. (laughs) It's not the most, like, exciting, va-va-voom game, but they love it, okay? And here's the real kicker. I have gotten better. I started not being able to play the game, not knowing which pieces went where on the board, not knowing how they moved, and I've gotten better. And I'm not, you know, I'm strong enough to tell you 
I still don't win most games, okay? <laughs> but I have gotten better because it takes them longer to beat me. <laughs> so pat on the back for me, that's exciting news. <laughs> Maybe one day I will win two games in a row. <laughs> but here's the deal when I'm playing chess with these kids. I can almost always tell which kid is going to beat me from how they play their first few moves. And I'm not talking about I'm some kind of chess wizard and I just, you know, I've memorized all of these plays and I say to myself, oh, they're moving that piece there and that piece there. Well, that means that they're setting themselves up for this. And so now I know that I have to move there and they have to move there and then they're going to take out this. I'll take out that. That's not what I'm talking about. Uh, no, that's uh, way too complicated for me. And I, frankly, I'm not that smart. OK, I'm not smart enough to memorize all of the different potential moves for each piece. Uh, and I don't really think that some of these kids you know, are thinking that way either, I'll be honest with you. But there's a distinct difference in how kids start games that helps me to know whether or not they're gonna beat me. And it's this, if a kid is willing to lose some of their smaller, more insignificant pieces to protect their king, I'm almost, con I'm almost sure they will beat me. It's the kids who, who think that they have to keep every single piece that is on their side of the board, that I always whoop. And here's why. It's because of focus. The game of chess is so simple in nature. It's so simple in goal and in purpose. Protect your king. That's all you gotta do to win the game. The other people can play circles around themselves, but if you are protecting your king, you will win. That is how chess goes. See, it's the kids who are willing to sacrifice some of the more insignificant pieces in the game, but that are still focused on keeping their king. Those are the kids who beat me almost every time. See, because other kids, while I'm picking off their smaller pieces and positioning mine around their king, they get so flustered about protecting all of the pieces on the board that they don't even realize that I've, I've positioned all of my pieces in such a way that it doesn't matter where they move. It's the kids who keep their focus who win games of chess. Even if that means that they have to wait. Even if that means that they have to wait for me to move just that one piece they need out of the way and I can't go back. Even if that means they have to play a whole game where they lose most of their pieces, but they just keep the few critical pieces they need, they keep their focus. They keep their king. So I have a question for you this morning. What's your focus? What is the thing that you are so focused on, that you are so sure is what you are called to do, that if you lose sight of it, you lose everything? What is your focus? Because what you focus on changes everything. Changes everything about the way that game is played. And for Christians, what we focus on changes the way that we live our lives. It changes everything about us. It changes uh, the, the interactions that we have with others and the way that we think. Scripture says that our minds are transformed to be like that of Christ. Now, that's not true of chess. You know, if I, I eat, sleep, breathe, and dream chess, I don't turn into a chess piece. But if I eat, sleep, breathe, Jesus... I become more like him. See, focus for Christians is everything. 
It's everything. And that's what we're talking about this morning. So from chess to focus. Did we get there? I hope we did. (laughs) Oh, man, oh, man. (laughs) Okay, just like in chess, if we lose sight of our purpose, we will lose the game. If we don't keep our eyes on our king, we lose the game. Right? And I think that's a very poignant example of what happens. Because how easy is it to focus on one thing versus 16? You know, if you're focused in a chess game on keeping all 16 of your pieces on your side of the board, man, you become easy to pick off. You become easy to distract. You become easy to discourage. But if you're just focused on the one, you become a better player. If you're just focused on the one thing, you have more concentrated effort. Focus is everything. And it can be so tempting to lose our focus when we have to wait. You know, show of hands, how many of you would say, I love to wait? I live to wait. And none of us. Waiting, frankly, stinks. And it stinks of something rotten. Maybe something that doesn't belong on a stage in church. It stinks. And waiting can be painful. And that's what we don't like to talk about. We all know it's a bummer to have to wait in an emergency room when you have a broken leg. But man, is that painful too. We have to wait in the emergency room with a broken leg. See, and in this day and age, it's so easy. It's so easy to not have to wait. Everything is right at our fingertips. If the wait at this restaurant is too long, we just go to the next one. And we subscribe to Netflix and YouTube Red and Hulu and Audible and so many other things to drown out the time where we're waiting. To pacify ourselves while we wait so that we don't have to address it. See, it's way easier to lose focus of what you're doing when you have to wait a long time for the fulfillment of it. I think in scripture of Abraham and Sarah and how long they had to wait for a son. And that was a painful amount of time. And I think of what went wrong when they did not wait well. I think of the sadness that comes from not waiting well. I also think of um, the 400 years of silence that the Israelites waited for a fulfillment of prophecy. 400 years that they waited for Christ to come. And the silence and the pain of that wait. I think of the painful wait that a member of my family had to go through after they had a miscarriage. Or I think of the painful wait that my grandma had to go through after she heard that my grandpa was diagnosed with liver cancer. (coughs) Waiting hurts. Waiting hurts. And so in all of this, waiting can sometimes seem impossible. It can seem hopeless. So how do we keep our focus in a period of waiting? We're going to be in Acts 16 today, taking a look at Paul. Um, And we know Paul. We've talked about him before. I've preached about him before, so I know you've at least heard it once. (laughs) We've talked about Paul. He wrote most of the New Testament. But there's something that I need you to hear from me. Do you know where he wrote most of the New Testament from? Prison. 
Man, if there's anybody in scripture who can give us a little picture of what it's like to maintain your focus and your purpose in a season of waiting, it's Paul. See, Paul goes from a man who is killing Christians and trying to wipe the name of Christ from the face of the earth to a man so transformed that he's spending time in prison with those Christians that he once persecuted writing about who the Lord is. See, his purpose changed. In that moment where he went from killer of Christians to Christian, everything about his life changed because his focus had changed, because his purpose had changed. And see, Paul was a missionary. And if there's one thing that we know about being a missionary, it's that, what is your job? To tell about Jesus. Paul went from a persecutor of Jesus to one of the greatest people to ever speak about Jesus. Paul went from a persecutor of Christians to being persecuted with Christians. His focus changed everything. So turn with me to Acts 16, and we're going to start in verse 16. It says this, Once when we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a female slave who had a spirit by which she predicted the future. She earned a great deal of money for her owners by fortune-telling. She followed Paul and the rest of us, shouting, These men are servants of the Most High God who are telling you the way to be saved. And she kept this up for many days. Finally, Paul became so annoyed that he turned around and said to the Spirit, In the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to come out of her. And at that moment, the Spirit left her. And when her owners realized that their hope of making money was gone, they seized Paul and Silas and dragged them into the marketplace to face the authorities. This is kind of a weird story, and it's only the beginning, right? I don't know about you, but when I picture biblical characters, I always picture them in, like, Jedi cloaks. I don't know why. I just, you know, these great swooping, like, cloaks, just magnificent, you know? And so in this moment, by the way, if you don't think that annoyance is biblical, it's right here in Acts 16. So the next time that that kid, you just want to flick him in the forehead, you go for it, bud. It's right there. You know, you can, you can tell me about it. I'll back you up. Annoyance, right? So I just picture Paul, and he's, he's being followed by this girl. And what originally sounds like a pretty good, a pretty good statement, you know, a pretty good, pretty good thing for people to be saying as they're following Paul and Silas, you know, these men are servants of the Most High God, and they've come here to show you the way to be saved. What initially seems like a good thing, you have to understand, comes from a place of mockery. This woman had a spirit in her, and she was mocking these men. And finally, Paul has had enough, right? And so with his grand cloak, he whisks around, and you just imagine the cloak just falling, and he says, in the name of Jesus Christ, I command you to get out of her. And it goes, and it just adds to the cloak, you know, the, the, the power of the cloak. <laughs> he stands there in that moment. But can you imagine the silence that follows? Can you imagine the silence that falls on all of the ears of the crowd as they hear this and they see this happen? See, what was being done to this girl was despicable. She had a spirit in her, and people were making money off of her. People were making money off of a really sad, sick girl. 
And that's gross. It's awful. But they were making money. And so in that silence, you can almost hear the anger start to build in their chests. You can almost see on their faces the rage that they feel that their money-making ploy has backfired. That this guy with the robe and the cloak, you know, he really messed up my day. And I wonder about the line of people who are following this girl, hoping to have their fortunes told. And I wonder about the disappointment that they felt because they had waited, but it wasn't going to happen for them that day. See, there's a big crowd of angry people all around Paul at this moment. Failed expectation, not being able to make money anymore, the business plan that you had sunk your everything into up in flames, and it's all mob forms, and they get mad. These are the voices that take on the forefront of this part of the story. Verse 22 The crowd joined in the attack against Paul and Silas, and the magistrates ordered them to be stripped and beaten with rods. After they had been severely flogged, they were thrown into prison, and the jailer was commanded to guard them carefully. When he received these orders, he put them in the inner cell and fastened their feet in the stocks. See, Paul and Silas are beaten, and they're thrown into jail. There are no trial, no lawyers, no questions. They are assumed guilty. But what had they done? In fact, who really were the people who deserved to be in prison in this story? It wasn't Paul and Silas. It was the men who were making money off of a sick girl. But here they are. They're, they're beaten and they're thrown into maximum security prison because that's what the inner cell is. It's the cell within the cell within the jail. Right, so the, the, the people are so angry at these guys and they're so afraid of these guys that they put them all the way in the deepest part of the jail. And there's something else you need to know about stocks. See, stocks make sense. We think about them like, like handcuffs. You know, that you just, but it's on your legs. You just cuff them together. But depending on how mad the person is who has accused you of a crime, the further apart your ankles could be. And so stocks are not just a method to keep these guys subdued and in place inside the jail. They're also a method of torture. You know, if somebody was maybe a little mad at you, maybe they'd be kind and put your feet together. You know, but if they were really angry, and this is a big mob of really angry people, then their legs go further and further apart, right? More and more in pain, right? So they've been beaten, they've been thrown into jail without a trial, and then they're tortured while they're in prison. Just keep that in mind as we continue with the story. See, Paul and Silas had done nothing wrong. Deliverance of a spirit was actually, I would say, a good thing. Right? There were even people who didn't believe in the power of Christ who came to Jesus to be freed, to be freed from demons. And what this crowd had accused them of was teaching things that were stirring up a crowd. But really what had stirred up a mob was the fact that these guys were angry. They were angry that they couldn't make money off of her anymore, and so they threw them into prison. 
So if we're doing nothing wrong, they find themselves in a position of being guilty of something. Have you ever felt that way? That no matter what you do, right or wrong, there are people against you. No matter what you do, right or wrong, there's not a way around the situation. I can imagine that this is how they felt. Man, we didn't do anything wrong. Out of annoyance, I banished a spirit, but it was a good thing. But here we are in prison. That feeling stinks. And you start asking yourself questions, doing a self-evaluation. How could I have done anything different or anything better to not be in this situation? Did I not give enough effort or time or energy or of my resources? What have I done to deserve something like this? And sometimes we ask ourselves these questions, but more often we ask the Lord, what have I done to deserve this set of circumstances? What did I not do to deserve this set of circumstances. And I think that some of us can say, you know, sometimes we, we ask those questions and we reach a place where we say, no, no, I can see exactly where it went wrong. You know, I did mess up, <laughs> you're right. Uh, it makes sense actually, looking back on it, that I'm where I'm at right now. But other times we can't find a reason. And so we get mad. And we ask the question, why is this happening? If you have ever gone through a period of time like this, a time of wondering and waiting and feeling like everything is against you, then this story is really relevant to you. This story should speak to a place in your heart. How do Paul and Silas respond to the same situation? Okay, thank you. (laughs) About midnight, Paul and Silas were praying and singing hymns to God, and the other prisoners were listening to them. Here's the first thing that we do when we are in a period of waiting in order to keep our focus. We focus on praising, not complaining. Focus on praising, not complaining. And I think that some of us read this verse and we're trying our best not to roll our eyes. Because the praying part, we understand. Because in times of trouble, what do we do? We pray. We pray for deliverance. We pray to get out of this situation. We pray for the pain to go away. Praying makes sense to us, but the praising part, man, that makes my eyes want to go all the way to the back of my skull. The praising in a time of waiting, but that's exactly what they do. And there's something important that we need to hear. See, it doesn't matter the shape that these two guys are in. They are bloodied, they are bruised, and this is hours after having had that happen. You know what happens if you don't do anything to a twisted ankle? That pain sharpens and it gets worse and it gets painful. Almost more painful than the initial time. It's a dull ache. And can you imagine what it feels like to have broken ribs, but to lift your voice and to sing? If any of you have ever had the wind knocked out of you, and I'm sure that many of us have, Falling off the swing sets is a real thing. It doesn't matter what age you are. (laughs) It's hard to get back up and immediately talk. It's hard to get back up and be able to sing. But this is the position we find them in. What are you doing during your waiting? Or, Or a better question, 
Has complaining ever helped your weight? Does it make it better? You know, when you're in the doctor's office and you're waiting and you were on time to your appointment, you were early so that you could fill out that paperwork, you knew that they would have you fill out, but you're still waiting. Does complaining make it better? Does complaining make it easier? No, it doesn't. And so as difficult as it is to hear that we need to praise and as frustrating as it can be at times to know that that's true, we know that complaining doesn't work. We know that praising makes the heart lighter. See, we're, we're pros at complaining. We're pros at asking for prayer in just such a way that we can explain exactly our situation and why we've been right the whole time and why I deserve those prayers of yours. We're experts at complaining, but you know who is better than adults at complaining? Kids. And I work all day with them, okay? I love kids, but they have this innate ability to take something good and to complain about it to the point that it's no longer good <laughs> and you just want to scream. <laughs> Sometimes kids can be really ungrateful. And I have a story about this in my own life, and I think about this story sometimes, and it, it makes me sad, frankly. See, when I was 11 or 12, I got to spend Christmas with my dad for the very first time in my life. For the very first time in his life, he got to spend Christmas with me. And the last time I preached, I told you that I consider myself a Grinch, and I still think that's true. I think, you know, I just, that character resonates with me, okay? <laughs> but that's important to this story, because my dad was so excited to spend Christmas with me. And I was excited because I had a lot of gifts under the tree. You know, and I had been waiting for those gifts. You know how it is at Christmas to look under the tree and to see your name on a box and to know that you can't touch it. Ooh! <laughs> see, I had been waiting for these presents. And on Christmas Eve, my dad finally relented. And he said, you can open one, one present. And I said, booyah! <laughs> I got it. But he said, I'm going to pick it out. I know, real bummer. But he picked it out, and I opened it, and it was a stuffed Grinch. And I, I loved it. It was great. And my dad had remembered that I had seen that at a store a while back and wanted it. And so he had gone back when I wasn't with him, and he had carefully picked it out, and he had wrapped it really special. And you know what I said to him? I said, thanks, Dad. I hope my presents only get better. That's a hurtful thing for a dad to hear. That's a hurtful thing for an excited dad who gets to spend the first time in his life with his kid for Christmas to hear. It was a terrible thing for me to have said. I took something good and something that I had wanted and I made it bad because I complained about it. Because I said, man, I hope this is the bottom of the barrel. You know, I hope that this one is the worst one that I get because that means everything else is going to be so much better. See, and I think that as adults, we never really fully walk away from this idea of complaining. It just evolves. You know, if our, if our cup isn't full, the whole time that we're at a restaurant, we cut the waiter's tip. Right? That's just, that's just bad service. That's terrible. We get this entitlement that we get nowhere else in the world. 
And we say, no, I deserve to be treated right. You see, I'm buying this food, and you will serve me the way I deserve to be served. And if you don't, well, I'll just tip 11%. You know, or our neighbor's leaves are falling into our lawn, and so we just call code enforcement. It's so much easier to just let the authorities deal with what is rightfully ours than, than to just ask our neighbor about it or maybe help clean up the leaves. See, as adults, I think we get better at complaining. It just looks a lot different than when kids do it. As I need you to hear the words that I'm about to say, there are, will be times in your life where you are waiting, and it is the most painful waiting you have ever experienced. But what is more important than the pain that you are, are walking through, that you are waiting in, is obedience. See, our obedience is more important than our rights. Our obedience to the Lord is far more important than what we think that we are entitled to. But we get that really backward. Oftentimes what happens is we hear from the Lord, we hear him tell us something, and we say, Lord, unless you give me another piece of confirmation, I won't do it. I know you've already asked me to do that thing, but unless you say it twice or three times, I'm not going to go there. Or we say, God, I know, I know that you have told me to forgive them, just as you've told everybody to forgive others, but I'm not going to do it unless they apologize. I'm not going to do it unless they own their side of the argument. Or we say things like, you know, I really know that I should, I should walk across the room and have a difficult conversation with that person. I should put myself in an uncomfortable situation because I know that it will be fruitful. But I'm not, I'm not going to do that because I'm entitled to my comfort. I'm not going to do that because you didn't ask me three times. I'm not going to do that because I laid the fleece out and you didn't respond. Our obedience is more important than our rights. And in this prison, in this story where Paul and Silas have done nothing wrong to deserve being in prison, and in fact, the people who put him in prison had broken the law because Paul is a Roman citizen and he didn't get a trial. In this story where Paul has done nothing wrong, and in fact, he has some rights that he hasn't exercised, we don't see Paul complaining. We don't see him praying to the Lord, woe is me. Instead, we hear the voice of Paul singing. We hear Paul and Silas singing praises to the Lord because they understood this. That their obedience to God in a season of waiting was more important than any rights that they had was more important than the fact that they were wrongfully put in prison. See, when you're waiting, if you don't choose to praise, and if you don't choose obedience, you will choose to complain. It is an either or, it is not a both and. If you are not praising, you are complaining. Our obedience is more important than our rights. Number two, focus on your purpose, not your problem. <clears throat> to maintain your focus in a period of waiting, to maintain your direction in a period of waiting, you have to focus on your purpose and not your problem. 
Another way to put this is focus on execution, not outcome. Focus on doing the best that you can do, not on how the situation will turn out. Focus on doing what is right, not on the outcome of your circumstances. Verse 26, suddenly there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. At once, all the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. So zoom back out and look at this picture again. Paul and Silas are sitting in prison, beaten and in pain, and they're praying and they're singing praises to the Lord and suddenly an earthquake so big happens that it shakes the foundations of everything around them. An earthquake so violent that the shackles that they were bound to are broken. Doesn't that seem like an answer to prayer? Doesn't that seem like an answer to what they've been asking, Lord, free us? God, we don't want to be here anymore. God, this prison is terrible. It's smelly. I'm surrounded by people who have actually committed crimes. Jesus, I'm tired. I'm tired of waiting. Doesn't this seem to be an answer to prayer? And isn't that what we pray for in times of trouble? We pray for the giant earthquake to release us from our situation. We pray for the shackles to fall off so we don't have to walk through it anymore. We pray for an escape. Verse 27, the jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, he drew his sword and was about to kill himself because he thought the prisoners had escaped. But Paul shouted, don't harm yourself. We're all here. First off, why is the jailer going to kill himself? Uh, there's this little tricky little uh, uh, law here. It's called custodia reorum. And it said that if you're guarding a criminal and they escape, you get their punishment. Paul and Silas weren't the only people in the jail. And so when this jailer walks down there and he looks and he thinks that all of the prisoners are gone, I can assure you he would have been killed. And so rather than waiting for his boss to find out that he had failed at his job and that an earthquake had happened and all of these, all of these prisoners had run away, rather than wait and face the punishment from his boss, he decides, oh, I'm just going to take it into my own hands. You know, I'm just going to fall on my sword and just be done with it. And Paul shouts, no, wait, stop, we're all here. Why on God's green earth are they all still there? Isn't this earthquake an answer to prayer? Isn't this earthquake what they had been waiting for? Isn't this escape from their situation what they were praying for? But Paul understood something that we lose sight of too often. See, he wasn't focused on his problem. The problem was he was in prison wrongfully. He wasn't focused on his problem. He was focused on his purpose. Would you be surprised to hear that that earthquake wasn't an escape from their problem, but it was actually a way for God to speak into their purpose? All of the prisoners are still there. And this is what happens. Verse 29. The jailer called for lights, rushed in, and fell trembling before Paul and Silas. He then brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you will be saved, you 
and your household. What is the purpose of a missionary? What is the purpose of a missionary? It's to tell people about Jesus. And so in this moment when Paul could have run from his problem, and it was a big problem, it was consuming most of his life at that time, (laughs) in a moment where he could have run away from his problem, he remembered his purpose, which was to tell people about Jesus. What would have happened to this story if Paul had run? What would have happened in this story if Paul would have seen that earthquake as an opportunity to escape, as an opportunity to flee from the problem that he could have been focused on? An entire family would have been lost. And something else to think about, all of the prisoners were still there. Why? Because hearing the praises of Paul and Silas had done something. Because hearing the way that they waited had done something. For those of us in a season of waiting, have we forgotten our purpose? Have we forgotten what it is that we are meant to do? Have we forgotten what we are supposed to to focus on and to lean into? Because if we have, if we're focusing on our problem rather than our purpose, this earthquake speaks to running away. But if we are so sold on our purpose, if we are so invested in preaching the name of Christ, then this doesn't look like an answer to a problem. It looks like an answer to a purpose. It looks like a call to live out what we've been asked to. And this goes right back to that first point, that their obedience was more important than their rights. And they were obedient. See, the best chess players never lose sight of their king. It doesn't matter what circumstances are going on. It doesn't matter who is putting what pieces where on that board. They do not lose sight of their king. They think five moves ahead. Because the best chess players are so focused on their purpose that they're willing to lose every other piece to protect their king. What is your purpose? What is your focus? Are you praising or are you complaining? Are you focused on your purpose or are you focused on your problem? Because based on those two things, You will either wait well, or you will not. Based on the answers to those two questions, you will either wait well and glorify the Lord, or you will not, and it will be harder than it needs to be. I'm going to invite the worship team back up. And as I do, um, I'm going to ask you guys to do something embarrassing. If you look around the room, There are not many of us in this room, right? And so that means that we can all see each other. It means that we all know what the person next to us is doing, what the person in front of us is doing. We probably know what the person behind us in the row is doing. Okay, so I'm going to ask you to just let yourselves be embarrassed for a moment if that's what it's going to be. But as this song starts, I want you to stay sitting. 
Because too often we focus on our problems, even when we're praising. I want you to stay seated. And I want you to tell the Lord all of the things that have been going on. He knows them. But I want you to tell them anyway. And then when you're ready, when your heart is clear, when your mind is clear, and you're ready to praise, I want you to stand up. And I want you to give it your all. <laughs> I want you to embarrass yourselves for the Lord in praise. Because what is a moment of embarrassment for a lifetime with the Lord? What is a moment of making a fool of myself praising during my season of waiting? <laughs>